Turn your Bibles, please, to 1 Samuel chapter 23. Is where we will be at this morning. Chapter 23 in Samuel. We're moving through this book. We're at chapter 23. We're going to finish 1 Samuel the summertime. Um, and as soon as we uh, launch uh, in the fall, we like to take a break. Maybe we'll do something on communities. But then we'll jump into uh, 2 Samuel come September. Really the life of David. And we'll look at that pretty closely as we go through those books as well. So 1 Samuel chapter 23. Kids, you're dismissed for a children's church as you... Continue to learn the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. The rest of us, there are Bibles in the back, blue Bibles in the back. Uh, I'm reading from the ESV. I'm going to read in a moment, but before I do, what I want to do is put chapter 23, which we'll be studying today, I want to put chapter 23 into some sort of context, okay? So maybe you haven't been here in a while, website, you could uh, download sermons, podcasts, video, whatever you want is on there for you. Um, Samuel. The book of Samuel began with Samuel, and now we're, we're in, in really in deep with the king. His name is Saul. The first king of Israel's name is Saul. He's the king that God, uh, that, excuse me, he is the king that Israel wanted. Israel wanted a king. God gave them what they wanted, and now King Saul is on a murderous rampage. His number one arch enemy is David. David is the second king of Israel. He's the anointed king. He's not king yet, but he will be king. God has chosen David to be king over Israel. Now David is on the run, right? He's not the king yet, but he's on the run. He's trying uh, uh, to get away from Saul. Saul had said last week, if you notice, that David is trying to kill Saul. That's not true. David is not trying to kill Saul. Uh, David is what we would say in the pressure cooker of life. Uh, you see, he's in the wilderness, he's running, he's, 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 he finds himself in different places, and he's in the wilderness because God is preparing David to take over Israel, to become king of Israel. And oftentimes, listen, God takes his children and he brings them into the wilderness to teach us. In the desert, where did Moses meet God the first time? In the desert. Where did Jacob wrestle with God face to face? In the desert. Where did Israel really make no God as covenant? Was it in slavery in Egypt? No, it was in the desert in Sinai. It is in the desert, in the wilderness, where you cannot survive without the intervention of the Lord. And the wells go dry. There's no more water. And God has to give us his drink, the water of God from the rock. It's in the wilderness where we get bread because all the bread that we have is moldy. So God gives us manna from heaven. You see, it's out in the wilderness in our life that we recognize that God is not just an add-on vitamin enhancement. He is life itself. And without his intervention, we have no hope. That happens many times in the wilderness. And we we come face-to-face with the truth that we are dependent upon the Lord. It's in the wilderness where all our pseudo-salvations, the things that we think really matter, that we count on, the thing that, that drives the, the shaft of our hearts, that pseudo-salvation, that false salvation comes crashing down. And in the wilderness is when we recognize and God is drawing us that he is our ultimate treasure. David is on the run. David is learning dependency upon God. In chapter 21, he's on the run. He flees to Nob, if you remember. In the center of worship is where the priests were. Then he goes to Gath. He's in the hometown of Goliath. And then he's, he fled to the cave of Adalom, where he gathered his family. We see him gathering 400 misfits. They'll become the new army of Israel. Then he goes to Moab. He's on the run through the desert. And he finds himself in the forest. And, he's, and, and, and it's in there where we presume anyway, we think, that David learns while he is running now from Moab in Herath, He learns the news that we learned last week in chapter 22. The horrific news that the priest, Ahimelech, and 85 other priests were slaughtered by King Saul. In fact, they went back to the city where their family is from, and they slaughtered the family as well. And last week we ended with David saying to the the only priest that escaped, Abiathar, Chapter 22, verse 22. He said to the priest that escaped, I knew on that day when Doag the Edomite was there that he would surely tell King Saul, I have occasioned, he said, the death of all the persons of your father's house. In other words, this horrible news is my fault. And in part it was. He had gone to Himelech, you remember, at Nob. He was fleeing the king. And he told the high priest that he needed bread, the bread of presents from the tabernacle. He needed the show bread. And he needed a weapon 
He told Himelech, I'm on a secret mission of God. He didn't tell him everything that was going on. And then Ahimelech helped David, and Saul found out. And Saul, the, the, the paranoid, extreme paranoid and, and conspiracy theory king, orders Ahimelech slain. There's no one to do it. The, the people of Israel say, no, we're not doing it. And he turns to, as the text tells us, Doag, the Edomite, the enemy of God, to kill God's priests and the families of priests. That's where we pick up the story. 1 Samuel chapter 23. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to read verses 1 through 18 right now, get into the text, and then we cover our last point, I'll read the rest. So chapter 23, verses 1 through 18 of 1 Samuel Hear the infallible, inspired, authoritative word of God. 1 Samuel chapter 23, verse 1. Now, they told David. David had just found out that the priests were killed. Now they told David, behold, the Philistines are fighting against Kaela and robbing the threshing floors. Therefore, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack the Philistines? And the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and save Kaela, Kaela. But David's men said to him, Behold, we're afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Kaela against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again, the second time. And the Lord answered him, Arise, arise, go. Go down to Kaela. I will give the Philistines into your hands. And David and his men went to Kaela and fought the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved, rescued, brought salvation to the inhabitants of Kaela. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, remember he's a priest that was spared, had fled to David in Kaela, he came down with an ephod on his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Kaela, and Saul said, Saul said, God has given him into my hands, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war, to go down to Caleb to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servants have surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Caleb to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Kaela surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, will the men of Kaela surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Kaela, and they went wherever they could go wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Kaela, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in his strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph and Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and, shall be, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained in Horesh, and Jonathan went home. May God add a blessing to the reading of his holy word. Three simple outlines. God's provision. God provides in guiding David. God provides David with friendship. And God provides in his holy and wise providence. Okay? Very simple. Guidance, friendship, providence, number one. Now, if you read chapter 23 and chapter 24, and I hope you're in the text over the next few weeks, we were reading through Samuel together, you'll notice over and over, I don't know, over a dozen times in those two texts, you'll see the word hand over and over again. There's David's hand, there's Abiathar's hand, there's Saul's hand. When we get to chapter uh, verse 16, we'll see there's strengthening in God's hand. The reason the word hand is over and over again is because there's a power struggle going on in these chapters. David is going to learn in the midst of his struggles, in the midst of his suffering, God will 
provide and God will guide him in this power struggle. He is the man of God. And the first thing we need to notice in this chapter is that David, who I told you before, he's not the, he, he's not the king yet, but he is being told that the enemies of God, the Philistines, are strong-arming the city of Keilah in Judah. Right? It was a little less than three miles from the cave he was at once before. It's a fortified city. In other words, it has walls. It's a protected city. Not every city had walls. But this city had walls. The city was located in a very agricultural place in Judah. It was somewhat further away from some of the other major cities, which means it was um, not very uh, connected with the rest of the cities for protection. It's early summer. It's a wheat harvest or a barley harvest has taken place. And the enemies of God see this, see them separated from some of the cities. It's close to the Philistines. And they see that it's harvest time. And what do they do? They take an opportunity. They're robbing what it says is the threshing floor. The threshing floor was a place where the Israelites would bring the wheat or the grain or the, or the, or the barley. And they would, it, 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 a lot of ways in which they did it. But the basic thing is they would break away the, the grain from the, um, the straw and the husk to get to the real food and it was a place it was it was it was, a, it was a joyful time because they were getting ready to eat right so remember when we talk about this we talk about grain we talk about bread we talk about wheat uh, you guys could probably live with some of you like i'm wheat free like that was life for them okay without wheat without grain without this they're dead this is sustenance for them this is serious and i, and I want you to understand that this is not a little problem they don't have walmart's we're out of wheat. Okay, I'll go get some, right? Then I have Price Chopper. This, they need to stay alive. They need these harvests. King Saul is nowhere to be found. King Saul is too busy worrying about David than to be concerned about an Israelite city that's under besiege. And what does David do? The first thing David does when he finds out the city is being taken or strong-armed by the Philistines he prays. The first thing David does, he prays. He's seeking the face of God. He wants to know the will of God. And I've said this many times, and I want you to see this again this morning, that there's a major contrast that the narrator is showing us between David and Saul. David, the man of the Spirit, and Saul, the man devoid of the Spirit, the man of faith, against the man of the flesh, those who trust in God and pray, and those who trust in their own abilities, their own pride, their own human strength. I hope that's not you this morning. Trusting and relying upon yourself. David's not that man. David, the anointed, we said he's the Christ, uh, not the Christ, but a Christ, is what anointed means, the messianic figure, continues to make choices relying upon God, God's strength. He is loyal, he is trusting in God. And these two men are going in opposite directions. And you could tell that by the decisions they make, or at least how they make the decisions, the important decisions of life. David is inquiring of the Lord. He's making important decisions. He's moving according to what God would have while Saul is dependent upon all his snitches and his paranoia and his and his anger and his uh, his murderous threats david is acutely aware of god's guidance in his life his 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 governance in his life while saul seems like he doesn't really care what god wants he's indifferent to that one man is 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 not perfectly but at least trying to seek the will of god the other one is avoiding it the man of the flesh the man of the spirit. And God responds to the man of the faith, David, who prays, right? Verse two, the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and save Kayela. But just when we take steps of faith, right? There's always those who say, hold on a minute, wait a second. Kayela is too close for comfort, his army says. Saul is close. We go in the middle of the city. We're gonna have problems, why are we doing this, David? We're hiding, we're running, we're in the wilderness, we're away from harm. Why are we going to go there? And notice what David does. Notice what David does. His men are like, yup, that's too close for comfort. David, rather than immediately trying to 
encourages people or, you know, um, you know give them a, a pep talk, which not necessarily a bad thing, what does he do? He prays again, verse 4. I think David is modeling for his men who are afraid, at least for the moment, that we pray together. I, we, I'm, I prayed, I got my answer, now I'm telling you, you guys don't want to go, all right, let's pray. And, and, and David prays again. He's modeling what men do when, and women do when they're seeking and willing, want, willingly wanting to know the will of God. I believe that's one of the things that makes David, David, and God's own, after God's own heart, is his prayer, his admission of dependency upon the Lord. David wants to help the city. The city's under besiege. It's his own people. But he also, before moving, wants to know the mind and the heart of God. God delights when we depend upon him. Are you depending upon him, family? Are you depending upon him in prayer? Are you seeking his face and listening to his voice? Now, some of you would love to say, and I know I'm with you. Lord, do I take this job and that job? Take the first job. Got it. That would be great. And if you hear God that way every day, set an appointment up with me. We should talk. Because he's not the one talking to you, right? You're not King David. I'm sorry. This is a unique time. Not everybody in even the scripture gets answers like David's getting here. Right? It's a unique time in redemptive history. God does not regularly talk to people this way. It's rare even in the Bible, right? But behind this unique and incredible communication between God and the man of God lies a principle. And the principle is this. God delights and God wants to guide his people. Prayer is a way in which we come to know the will of God. We go to the Lord in prayer. We speak to the Lord in prayer. Paul says, pray without ceasing. But family, we have the word of God, the scriptures. God speaks. We must search the Bible. The Bible. We must unknow the scriptures. We, we must think biblically when we're looking for guidance. Must think biblically when we're looking for guidance. Pastor John Piper wrote an article years ago. I think it was in the 90s. And he gives four things. Let me just throw them at you. Four things um, when it talks about guidance. How, getting God's, getting the lead. Getting, uh, finding out where God is leading us. Says there four ways that God does it. Number one, he says declaration. Right? There are times where God speaks to our hearts through his spirit. Acts 8. An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip. Arise and go. All right? Now, we're not talking about, please, we're not adding to Scripture. We're not saying it has the same authority as Scripture. But there are times when God gives us that still small voice and his presence and impression on our hearts of direction that we ought to go. That, That happens. God speaks. Okay? Again, not authoritative like Scripture, but God speaks. Number two, he does it and leads us by decree. In other words, God sovereignly decrees and designs circumstances, right? David is in the midst of this now. We'll see at the end where God wants us where he wants us, and he has circumstances in our lives that place us right where he wants us, whether it is a flat tire, <laughs> a loss of a job. God designs in his sovereignty and brings us where we need to be. Paul and Silas Paul and Silas find themselves in the jail cell in Acts 16 suffering and the result the jail the, the jailer and his household become Christians. I don't think they said let's go get arrested and locked up and suffer so that the jailer could get arrested. I appreciate that because I was a jailer. So I appreciate that, but that wasn't but God is leading them. The mystery of his sovereignty. The work and the mystery of sovereignty. And our responsibility. Real choices we make. So he does it. Declaration, decree, and direction. Listen, God has declared to us. And, and maybe some of you don't need to hear this. But it's amazing to me that some of the clear teaching of Scripture, people still want to pray about. Like, wh- why are we praying? Don't steal. Don't kill. Love your enemies. Be filled with the Spirit. Put on humility. I wonder if I should be humble. Yes. Should I, should I forgive? Yes. Should I be faithful in my marriage? Yes. I got the answer for you. It's right here. Should I be emotionally and physically abusive? No. That's easy. Direction. And then discernment. I think a lot of us, this, this is kind of where we're at sometimes, right? 
Some of the decisions we make are not spelled out specifically in Scripture. God will lead us through the process, applying biblical truth, biblical principles in our particular circumstances. Romans 12 speaks about that. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, what? By the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. In that case, God doesn't give us a specific word, but the Spirit shapes the mind, shapes the heart through the word and through prayer so that we have inclinations toward that which is most glorifying to him and, and, and beneficial and loving toward others. It comes through the word and through prayer. David is a man of the faith. David is a man of prayer. David is a man of the spirit. He hears from God. He, he moves in faith to do what God tells him to do, and he moves He knows the direction, and he goes and he defeats the Philistines. He has a word he could trust. Look at verse 4. He gets a simple command. Verse 4, go, right? It's the promise. I mean, that's the command, go. And look what what the promise is. You'll be safe. You'll You'll have victory. For I, God says, for I, that's emphatic, will give the Philistines into your hands. That sound familiar? Go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them. I will be with you for eternity. Go and the promise. See that in Matthew 28. In verses 6 through 15, God provides again for David. David is in a city. Verse 5, he's the Savior. He gets a visitor. He gets the only visitor that escaped, as we mentioned about. Abiathar shows up. Look at verse 6. He has an ephod in his hand. We'll get to that in a minute. Now, you would think... David just rescued those people of food that's necessary for life. You think they would be the greatest fans of David. We got you back, man. You are safe and secure in this city. Not going to happen. Saul learns of David's presence. He calls together the army. He wants to attack the city. He wants to go into his own city. It's like, you know, Glenmont attacking Ravenna. He wants to, you know, are you kidding? You want to attack your own city? Saul is acting like who? The Philistines. That's what Philistines do, the enemies of God. He's sure that if he does that, he'll capture David. That's all that matters. And you don't hear one word about Saul saying, oh, that city's been, was oppressed, and now they've been set free. Praise ye to God. Whoever did it, doesn't matter. Our people were being oppressed. The threshing floor was being uh, taken, and now they've been delivered. You don't hear any of that. Because he's all about self. That's what the flesh is, all about self. And Abiathar comes in the presence of David, and he has what it says, an ephod with him. The ephod was a, was a garment that priest wore, and there was a special garment, linen garment, that not only the priest wore, but there was a special one that the high priest would wear, and in it what they had what is called an urim and thummim. We, we talked about this a little before. We're not sure exactly what it was. It was a breastplate, though. It was a breastplate. It had the names of Israel on it. And in it were stones, we believe. There were stones uh, in it. We're not sure exactly. It's sort of like a, a divinely sanctioned lot casting. And they would function like heads and tails, like you flip a coin. And some people think the stones were dark and light. It was yes and no. But the high priest would inquire of God and then reach in and whatever stone he pull out would get the answer. Yes or no. Somewhat primitive to some degree, but in Proverbs 16.33, it says the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is of the Lord. And that's the way God, sometimes in the Old Testament, would show his will through the high priest, through this Urim and Thummim, through this yes and no, and they would ask. Now, we have the complete scriptures, we have the whole Bible, we have the church, we have the outpouring of a spirit, but in those days, David would do that. And David says, bring the high priest to me, bring the Urim and Thummim, we're your ephod, we have to inquire of God. Now, what's interesting about this, family, think about it for a minute. David, the king, or the king-to-be, certainly has shown himself, if you've been tracking with us, as a valiant military warrior, right? The guys win, win, win. Unlike the beating the Yankees got last night. But anyway, (laughs) but David still Inquiring of God. 
right? He, he still does not want to move. I'm in Keilah. I, am I going to be held here and David going to get me? Let's inquire of God. And he's showing his humility. He's showing his intimacy with the relationship with God of Israel. Look what he says. Oh, Lord, God of Israel. He asks two questions and he, and he begins the questions with that. Oh, Lord, that's the covenant personal name of God. Oh, Lord, God of Israel, personal covenant God of Israel, sovereign over his people. Will Saul come down? Will, will Saul come down? Will your servant be given into the hands? Will the people of Kayela surrender me? Is this what's going to happen? And the Lord says, yes. Yes, David's coming, and yes, you'll be surrendered into the hands. So there's only one thing for David to do, right? Run. Run, Forrest, run. Let me get out of the city before David gets here. But notice in verse 10, I don't think David is only concerned. That's what the man of the spirit is. He's not only concerned about his own well-being. Look at verse 10. He says, Saul is seeking to come to Kayela to destroy the city on my account. You see that? I have it up there in verse 10. On my account. Now think. David has already dealing with what happened in Nob. The fact that he was in the city, his presence was there, he asked the priest, he didn't take care of Doag, and the whole city was destroyed. And now look at him, he's concerned about the city. The city in which is giving him over, David is concerned about. That's what the men of the Spirit do. They care about other people. Verse 13. And David and his men, about 600, and he was gaining some people here, arose and departed from Kayela, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the stronghold of the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph, a city of Judah, approximately about, it's about five miles from Hebron. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give David into his hand. Now, Saul sought him, but God did not give him into his hand. Now, look, if you can, if you got your Bibles open, I don't have it there, but look at verse 7. Look at the contrast. The paranoid murderous Saul thinks God has delivered David into his hands. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Kaela, and Saul said, awesome, God has given David into my hand. No, he didn't. He came up that, he came that, he came to that himself. David is seeking the God, seeking God. Saul is inquiring no one. He's receiving not divine revelation. He has his snitches and his circumstances dictating to him whether or not he is in the will of God. Do you hear that? He has circumstances and he has others. And he's taken circumstances, he's taken what other people say as the will of God. He's not... He's not willing to have a relationship with God. He's not willing to to be humble before God. He's not willing to submit to the word of God. We shouldn't assume. We should not assume because of circumstances and what others tell us alone whether we are in the will of God or not. Are we willing to submit to the word of God, to hear the spirit of God? That's very important. That is very important. What a contrast between Saul and David. At Nob, Saul murders the people of Israel. When Keilah, David becomes the savior of Israel. Saul whining last week. We saw that. He feels sorry. No one feels sorry for me. No one's telling me anything. Everything's a conspiracy. No one's giving me information. But here, God is disclosing his word, his will, and his guidance to David. When the whole world seems to be senseless and unpredictable, when madmen and people seem to have power to carry out wicked schemes, resulting even in death and suffering of innocent people, family, God is in control. While not immediately apparent in chaos and confusion, God's plans and purposes will be accomplished, even by the means of a lunatic, a paranoid, hating man. God is in control, even though... It appears not from the scene. Saul may seem to have the upper hand, but David is provided God's hand. There's a difference. And notice what's happening as we turn. This is the longest point, by the way. But I want, before we leave this, I want, you to, I want you to notice what's happening. David in the wilderness right now has an army, 
because kings have armies. He has, if you remember from last week, a prophet. His name is Gad. And now he has what? A priest. Abiathar, the high priest. Prophet, priest, and king with an army. The new Israel shaping. The new Israel is coming together. Guidance, look at verse 15 through 18. Not a lot of verses. Wonderful, full of meaning, full of application. David is in the wilderness while Saul is frantically trying to find him. He can't find him. He keeps missing. And look at verse 16, almost comical. Jonathan just shows up. God provides Jonathan. I say that, that God provided him because, as I said, (laughs) everybody in Israel seems to be looking for David. He seems to be slipping out of their hands. And and Jonathan, like, walks into the camp. Oh, Oh, hi, David. Like, oh, you found us. That was pretty easy. Tell me God's hand is not all over David. Now, listen, David trusts the Lord. David is growing in his relationship with God. David has an army. David has the high priest and a prophet. But what does God send him? A friend. A friend. A friend in the faith, not just a friend. Right? I have lots of friends who are not followers of Christ. We all should. But there's no one like a brother, a sister in the battle who walks with you when everything appears to be against you. So how does God provide for him? How does God provide for us? For for us to press on in life when the world gives us no hope? When, When the circumstances around us seem hopeless? He gives us each other. Brothers and sisters in the faith. Hebrews 3. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. See what the Hebrew is saying? We need grace, we need truth every day. Otherwise our hearts will become hard. And the word exhort in Hebrews means to confront, to lovingly to confront, to, to speak, to address someone so that the deceitfulness of sin does not harden our hearts. Sin is deceitful. We need each other. We need to give permission to each other to show us times that we need to repent, times that we need to be encouraged. We need community. We need gospel community. And and when we're giving someone a license to to have those hard conversations with us, you say, well, I've done that before, and it didn't really go well. Okay. Have you ever been to a doctor and it really didn't go well and you just stopped going to doctors? I hope not. When we are in an authentic community, we're speaking to each other, we're loving each other, we're strengthening each other, we're encouraging one another, we're showing ways in which we can spur one another on. Are you involved in a community group? Are you building relationships with people? Are you learning how to repent in the gospel? David wrote many psalms. David wrote all about hope and trust in God. David wrote how God will shepherd him. He'll make me lie down in green pastures. He'll lead me beside still waters. He'll restore my soul. God leads me in the path of righteousness. I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil. For you, God, are with me. Your rod and your staff, they come for me. It's that David who has an intimate relationship with the Lord. Needs Jonathan. Understand that. Look what he does. Two things. Jonathan didn't say, David, listen, believe in yourself. You can do this, David. David, remember, this is your best life now. He doesn't quote Joel Osteen. Start calling yourself healed, happy, whole, blessed, and prosperous. Stop talking to God about how big your mountains are and start talking to your mountains how big your God is. That's really a quote. Jonathan says, it says in chapter 16, uh, verse 16, strengthened his hand in God. NIV, helped him find strength in God. What did Jonathan do? He pointed David to God. And that's the reason when we talk about our deepest friendships, 
must be God-centered. Again, there's nothing wrong with having deep relationships and deep friendships outside of those walking with Jesus. I'm not saying that. But I am saying only those who have the Spirit of God dwelling within them can encourage you or would encourage you to seek first the kingdom, the face and the glory of God. They're the only ones who will be able to help you live your life for the beauty and glory and sufficiency of Christ. They're the only ones. If you're not living for that, and that's not your interest, then have all the deep friends you want. But if you don't have someone alongside you that can help you and walk with you seeking the glory and face of God, you don't have friends like Jonathan is with David. Jonathan points David to God. Look what he does. Second thing. He encourages him by reminding him of the promises the Lord has made. You, again, verse 17, emphatic, will be king, while I emphatic, will be second to you. Everyone knows this. Saul knows this. The Lord is overseeing this, David. The Lord is the one that is rising you to kingship. The Lord is the one that's doing this, David. You do not need to be afraid. He is not going to let anyone's hand be upon you. It was God's decision to install you as king. And Jonathan is simply just reaffirming, David, God's promises, which everyone seems to know, and, and I, I think, I don't know about you, and I'm, I'm sure you're a lot like me, just having the presence of a friend is important. Just having somebody there to cry with, to yell at, <laughs> if you're in my friends anyway. Um, but as refreshing as that is, his personal presence does not have the enduring encouragement that the word of God has. Ralph David writes this. We best encourage, not by, not by being cuddly with people, but by reminding them of the promises of God. Encouragement from God for the people of God comes from the word of God. I am not depreciating the helplessness of the personal touch or care, but in an age that wallows in caring and sensitivity... On every hand, believers need to know that solid encouragement comes not from emotional closeness, but from God's speech. The things of the Lord, end quote. And once again, they see these two men, verse 18, make a covenant. They're committed to each other for the good of the kingdom. They're committed to each other to the glory of God. They're committed to each other to the things that God has promised. That's a friend. And Jonathan comes and he strengthens David's hand, Jonathan comes to David and strengthens David's hand by placing David's hand in God's hand. See that? Beautiful expression. There's danger. There's a maniac trying to kill you. But Jonathan says, God has given you his word. God has given you his promise. God has anointed you. Trust God. Trust his promises. His word is true. It's steadfast. It's immovable. So let me ask you this question before we move on to point three. Do you have friends like that? Are you a friend like that? Have you, and this takes time. Uh, are you being intentional? Uh, are you spending time in community? Are you building relationships of those in the faith to point each other to the promises, the purposes, and the goodness of God? I hope you are. Join a community group. Talk to me. Talk to one of the pastors. We'll connect you with somebody. If you want to be discipled, even on a one-on-one or one-on-two or one-on-three basis, let me know. Friends come along. And look at verse 18. David remained at Horesh after Jonathan has done his mission, and he goes home. The last time the, I believe these two people have this face-to-face encounter is here. And you can see the weightiness of this conversation. God provides guidance. God provided friendship. And now God's provision in providence. Listen, God not only knows all the possibilities of the future, God knows the outcome. He knows all things, all circumstances. It's one thing to know what the future is. It's another thing to know what the future holds under all circumstances and still be sovereign over them. God is all-knowing, omniscient, in such that he knows all things actual, all things possible, and God knows the beginning from the end. And we see that God is in control. Man is responsible, God is in control. David is under the mighty hand of God, and he's been given much. And you know what? Sometimes God's guidance, sometimes God's provision, whether whether he's providing through guidance or he's providing through friendship, because he's doing all that, because he knows what's next in your life. 
verse 19. Then the Ziphites went to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding? So now he's at Ziphites, he's hiding. Is not David hiding among the strongholds of Horish on the hill of Hekelah, which is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, king. Now these are the Ziphites saying to Saul, Come now, king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him, that's David, into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have compassion on me. Go make yet more sure, know, and see the place where his foot is, and who has seen him there. For it is told to me that he is very cunning. See, therefore, and take note of all the lurking places where he hides, and come back to me with sure information. Then I'll go with you. And if he is in the land, I will search him out among the thousands of Judah, and they, will, and they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. See what's going on here? Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the Arabah, in the south of Jeshimon, and Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain, David and his men on the other side of the mountain, and David was hurrying, it's like a movie, hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul, saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape or Division. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engeda. Do you see? Do you see? The Ziphites are willing to give Saul what he wanted, and that's the head of David, right? And they approach Saul, and again, his snitchery, is going on. I made that word up. It's, I don't think it's a word. I'd like to say in a word, but I'm using it. And Saul, look what Saul says. May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Once again, we see Saul and his religiosity. He's willing to talk the talk, but he's not walking the walk. May the Lord, really? He says, go and find out where he is because this guy is cunning. Like, he's, he's slippery. I think he's just getting tired of chasing around or up and down mountains, around caves. Like, ah. you find out where he is. You find out exactly where he is. You get all your snitches to come back and tell me where he is, and then I will go and I will find him. Of course, David finds out. He flees. He escapes. He's, you can see it. You can see the mountain. And, and the armies are on one side, and the other armies on the other side. They're coming down. You can see that once they reach the bottom, there's going to be a, a meeting. David is in trouble, and David is hurrying to try to escape. And, in the, and like, you know, that's when it's a commercial break. Like, ah, you got to wait, you got to wait, wait. And the commercial opens up, and then somebody comes and says, oh, by the way, Saul, listen, we can't, we can't keep doing this. You don't know what's around the corner, right? David is right there. We can't keep doing this. The Philistines are attacking the land. And all of a sudden, Saul is obedient to the royal mandate given by God to attack the Philistines, right? And he reluctantly, I'm sure, stops what he's doing, and he goes. You ever get pulled over by a police officer, right, going through a red light or maybe a stop sign, and all of a sudden, he's talking to you and jumps back in his car, and his lights go on, he takes off. You're like, well, I don't know where he's going, but good, go. The bank robbery, much more important than me going through that stop sign. Believe me, go, you go what you got to do, right? So you, you can't stay here. Now, what's so interesting is turn in your Bibles really quickly. We're almost done. In Psalm 54, so this, the Ziphites are after uh, giving up David. Ziphites are going to give up David. Saul is going to come to them, and, and, and the snitches are going to give him up. What would you say? What would you write? What psalm would you say in this moment in David's life? Well, we have it. Very short. Seven verses. David's on the run. Oh God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. Oh God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Selah. Stop. Reflect. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, 
Put an end to them. Vindication is yours, Lord, not mine. With a freewill offering, I will sacrifice you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. Verse 7, for he has delivered me from every trouble. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you for reminding me of that. And my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. The narrator already told us that God did not deliver him into his hands. And let me tell you what's going on here. God is delivering David by the hand of the Philistines by protecting him of Saul. Just as Saul is closing in on David and feel he's trapped, the Philistines say, let's attack Israel. And you see the irony, the working of God in his sovereignty to his holy and wise purposes. He's free to use whatever means he wants. God used the distraction of the Philistines rather than the help of the Ziphites to rescue David from the hand of Saul. How great is that? Listen, while Dave, excuse me, while Saul is David's enemy, while, while David is Saul's enemy, the Philistines are unwittingly David's allies. Saul, hatred of David. David is now the Philistines are working for David. Their attack is, is God's means of deliverance. You see that? And those of you, there are those who would say, circumstance, happenstance. But the faithful, as we read this chapter, recognize and we praise God that God is sovereign. That his, his, he has an endless assortment of ways in which he delivers us from our enemies. It teaches us of the providence of God, the strange ways in which God works. One last thing we must notice as we close. David will become king, but David will only become king through rejection. He's rejected by his own, first with Kaela. He's rejected by and suffering in the hands of the Ziphites. He's both rejected and he's suffering. It is the way of the wilderness that brings about the kingdom. The scriptures are clear that the anointed one, David, now in the Old Testament, must suffer and then enter into glory. David is a foreshadow of the ultimate sufferer, the ultimate rejection of the true and the better king. As Jesus was approaching Jerusalem, he could see what was before him. He knew what was before him. He said, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, into the hands of his own fellow Jewish people and he would be rejected and he would be killed and on the third day rise from the dead after his resurrection on the road to Emmaus Jesus says oh foolish ones slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken was it not necessary that the Christ the anointed one should suffer these things and enter into his glory beginning from Moses and the prophets and probably even David he interpreted them the scriptures, all what the scriptures said about himself. O foolish ones, he says to his disciples, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer? Jesus suffered and was rejected. And all the while on the cross, on the, in the wilderness, on the cross, and he cries out, alone, if you remember, I thirst as he's about to give up his spirit. Why is that? Listen, the prophet Nahum tells us the, slow, the Lord is slow to anger. He's great in power. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Who can stand before God's indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by God from the cross. As Jesus is suffering, as Jesus is rejected by the Father, darkness comes over the land and he cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? While the hot, fiery wrath of God comes upon him in the wilderness. He separated his parched mouth as the wrath and the judgment of our sins fall upon him. And then he gives up his spirit. He goes into the tomb after taking our judgment and the wrath, the fiery hot wrath of God 
upon himself for us. He rises from the dead. Three days, tomb is empty. Declaration, the Son of God, sins forgiven, written across the sky. That you and I can know that we have reconciliation with God. And that's what the communion's about. And that's every month or every twice a month we gather together. We have bread and we have the cup. The bread reminds us of the body that was broken. It was, it was Jesus who went through that grueling crucifixion and was nailed to the cross as our atonement, our substitute, and his blood that was shed on the cross for the means of our forgiveness. The band's going to play. We're going to confess our sins. We're going to repent. It means to turn from sin. And we're going to celebrate the gospel. We're going to celebrate the gospel, and you're going to come up when you get a chance, take a bread, take the cup, and celebrate God's forgiveness for you. Now, if you're a believer, the table is open for you. If you're not, we're glad you're here. We love you, but this table is for those who have trusted Christ. Maybe today's the first day you're going to trust Christ. Maybe it's the first day that you're going to say, yes, God is good. God will provide. God has provided for me his son who suffered and was rejected and died for me. Then come. But let's together worship. And remember our suffering Savior who died in our place, who took the wrath we deserve and rose victorious over sin, death, and hell. Father, we see this life of David as a foreshadow of a greater sufferer. We see the life of David in this intimacy with you. And we see Jesus even greater because he is fully man and fully God. The second person of the Trinity. And Lord, we thank you. Father, in sending your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, Spirit of God, we thank you for opening up our eyes to see the beauty and incalculable worth of Christ. And Father, together as we worship and continue to worship in song and taking of communion, we pray, Father, that we would be honest about our sin, that we would be uh, uh, willing to confess our sins, that we would repent of our sin, and then we would celebrate the only provision for our souls. And that's Jesus Christ who invites us to this table. Let us worship you. Let us worship you in spirit and truth, for you have always and will always keep us because of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.